I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. After consistent drops in infections, hospitalizations, and intensive care admissions, Mayor Bill de Blasio said today New York City, once the center of the nation's coronavirus crisis, would move to phase two of its reopening starting Monday. We've seen consistent progress, and it's time to say to everyone getting ready for phase two, uh, get on your mark, get set, because here we go. On Monday, Phase two means playgrounds, hair salons, indoor retail, and outdoor dining. The city will allow restaurants to expand seating on sidewalks, curb lanes, and some streets that are going to temporarily close next month to make room. New York has seemingly come out of its crisis point as other states appear to be moving into it. And for the first time today, Governor Andrew Cuomo said New York is considering instituting a quarantine period on anyone from Florida. Though previously dismissive of the idea, Cuomo said he has experts who have advised him to impose such a restriction. I haven't made a decision yet, but I have had experts advise me of that. It is a real concern. You're right. It could happen. Cuomo mentioned how Florida imposed a two-week quarantine on New Yorkers at the onset of the pandemic. Florida and other states imposed the quarantine on New Yorkers. If you went to Florida... You had to quarantine for two weeks because they were afraid that New Yorkers were bringing the virus to their state. Fast forward 100 days, now we're afraid they're bringing the virus to our state. Florida reported a new single-day increase in infections today, 3,207. This is the first time the state has posted more than 3,000 cases in a single day. Dr. Eileen Marty joins us now from Florida International University, an infectious disease specialist. What's going on in your state? What's going on is we are now observing the results of the last couple of weeks of people getting together too closely and without taking precautions so that our numbers are rising and they're rising for real. It's not just testing. It's it's a huge percent increase per you know, per testing area, well, a very significant increase per per testing area. So we're over 12% positive rate. And in addition to that, we're seeing more cases coming into the hospital. Yeah, the CDC says you should be at about 5%, I think, before you reopen things. 12% positivity on the testing is a significant increase. Yes, it is. And it's worrisome to everyone in the healthcare community right now. The governor had talked about testing, and that's the reason. But clearly, there's more to it than that. There is more to it than that. I mean, because one thing is to look at the absolute number of cases. And that, in theory, absolutely could go up simply by conducting more tests. But the percent positive has also gone up. And uh, and we're seeing that percent positive going up here in Miami-Dade, which is not a new community of, of being tested. So it's a community that we've, we've been having ongoing tests, and now our percent positive is higher, and our, our admissions to hospitals are going up again. What's the answer? What should the response be? Well, I think that leadership needs to be very clear on reminding the population of what we need to do to bring the numbers down without, if we can avoid it, going into a lockdown, which means everyone has to recognize that we have a serious virus, that's a very deadly virus for certain members of our community, 
um, that it can cause long-term complications in survivors, and that this is something that is preventable by our actions. Is that a message that just didn't get across at the outset of the pandemic because the virus seemed to be hitting the Northeast or Western states much harder than it did Florida, at least initially? I think that people were paying attention to the wrong numbers and not understanding the science, not understanding that this is simply a submicroscopic uh, piece of genetic information covered in protein that wants to get from one host to the next. And there are basic things that we can do to prevent that from happening. And among those things are hygiene, uh, our use of uh, facial coverings, and our social distancing. And if we do that and couple it with identifying where the virus is by doing testing of every level of symptomatic patient, isolating those individuals, testing their closest contacts, whether they're symptomatic or not, and then quarantining individuals who are still close contacts but have tested negative. If we do that, we can accomplish having a functional economy and getting rid of the virus. But if we don't do those things and we give the opportunity for this virus to have free range, then we wind up with wild community spread like we had. The virus doesn't care what we believe, doesn't care about our politics. It only cares about getting from one host to the next. And when we ignore that, anyone who does ignore that reality of the basic science is missing the point and actually can do themselves more harm than good. Dr. Eileen Marty at Florida International University. In Tennessee, the increase in cases is likely driven by tourism during Memorial Day weekend, when a FEMA document obtained by ABC News said large crowds did not practice social distancing or use masks. In New Hampshire, there has been a 60% decrease in the availability of ICU beds in just the last three days. Another 1.5 million Americans filed new claims for unemployment insurance. Not all may have been laid off last week. There's still some backlog in the system, but layoffs are still coming as the pandemic reaches deeper into the economy and employers appear reluctant to bring back all their workers. ABC's Alex Stone joins us now with a sign, though, of economic recovery. Alex, indications are air travels on the rebound. Demand is definitely going up. I can tell you I flew this week every one of my flights except for middle seats, which some airlines are still doing, they were completely full. I went through the Vegas airport. It looked like a normal pre-COVID-19 day in Vegas. Seattle's airport was pretty busy. Burbank that I was in, it was busy as well. That's backed up by the numbers. Delta Airlines today saying they're looking at August capacity going up, still down about 55% compared to this time last year, but it's a lot better than the 90% decline that that we were talking about a couple of months ago. So things are rebounding. Still going to be slow. Delta's adding about a 1,000 flights in July and August. JetBlue is adding flights. United had already announced it was bringing back flights. American as well. So are they back to normal? No. Is it getting better? Yeah. You mentioned middle seats being empty. That's by design, right? Yeah, that's uh, the plan. Delta is saying that they're going to do it through the end of September, at least going into October, Uh, Some of the other airlines aren't doing it anymore. 
United's not really doing it. American's not doing it. Southwest is. It's not assigned seats on Southwest, so they just leave enough open so that depending on where people want to sit, that they could leave a middle seat open. Alaska Airlines still doing it, but it's not guaranteed on on many carriers. Delta's still guaranteeing it. They say they feel like they need to do it. More than anything, it's peace of mind. You're not, even when you have an open middle seat, you're not six feet away from the other person, and you're definitely not six feet away from the person in front of you and behind you, but it does give you a little bit of peace of mind if you're not shoulder to shoulder with that person right next to you. And no matter where you sit on the plane, many airlines are requiring masks. Yeah, pretty much every major airline is now requiring masks, and they're getting tougher on the masks. There are people who have refused to wear them. You know, airlines have kind of said, well, we want you to wear them. Please wear them. Now the big airlines, United, uh, American, some of the others are saying, if you don't wear a mask, if you refuse after you're told you've got to wear it, that they will potentially put you on their own internal blacklist and you won't be able to fly on that airline for a certain amount of time. And United is the one kind of leading this effort, saying if we tell you you must wear a mask and you absolutely refuse, well, then you're not going to be flying United. They won't say for how much time, but for a certain amount of time. And this is all an effort to try to get people to to wear masks, something that the airlines say science and evidence show do actually work in preventing the spread of droplets on board, and the airlines say it's got to be done. ABC's Alex Stone with us. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, we're seeing new cases rise sharply in a lot of states. Uh, And there's real concern that confusion about what this virus is and means is leading to some bad behavior. So talk us through what we do know, kind of like coronavirus 101. 101. And let's do the deep dive on it, Amy, because it's hard to remember. It's hard to realize that it's only been six months and it's so easy to get lost in all this changing information. So at this point, here's what we know. This is a highly transmissible respiratory virus. Uh, right now, data supports the fact that about 25 percent or more of confirmed cases can literally show no symptoms, be asymptomatic um, based on reported data in the literature. Eighty percent of cases do not require hospitalization. That's the good news. And we also know that the risk of severe disease or death with COVID-19 does go up with chronic conditions, brown and black ethnic groups, age increases, and men versus women. So those are the high-risk populations. Another bit of confusion, it seems many people believe because we spent those months in quarantine, in lockdown, that the virus has gotten better or that it's not as prevalent. Right. Uh, There are a lot of myths out there. Which ones concern you the most? These are the ones that I'm hearing on a regular basis. And listen, that that behavior, that thinking is understandable because we do just want to go back to the way it was last summer. But the myths that I think are really potentially dangerous, uh, the virus just disappeared. It's gone. It's not out there anymore. Uh, I'm young, so I'm not really at risk. I can't get it. Um, As long as someone has no symptoms, because we hear how many are asymptomatic, they're not really sick and therefore not infectious. And as long as I'm six feet away from you or if one of us is wearing a mask, I'm fully protected. 
all of those not only not true, they're dangerous, not just for you as an individual, but the people around you. All right. And since the virus is still new in terms of viruses, what are the questions that truly no one really knows the answer to? Always so important in medicine and science to remember it's as important what we don't know as it is what we do know. So in terms of coronavirus um, right now, we really don't have good data yet on how effective masks are at reducing the spread to others and or protecting the person wearing it. We think there's some benefit, but we don't know how much. We don't know how much of transmission of this new strain of coronavirus is by droplet versus by longer range aerosol or airborne or contact transmission. That's still being figured out. And we don't know when each various state's hospital systems or healthcare systems will reach capacity. That's one of the things we're watching closely. And we don't know how many more cases How many more hospitalizations and COVID-related deaths could be prevented Mm. by more mask wearing, more aggressive social distancing and avoiding these crowds? So still learning about this virus day to day. All right. We're learning a lot from you, though, Dr. Jen. Thank you. In the wake of reopenings across this country, six states are now seeing a rise in coronavirus cases, making them the newest hotspots. And one of those states is Arizona, which reported a record 2,392 new cases this Tuesday. Joining us now is the mayor of Phoenix, Arizona, Kate Gaye. Mayor Gayoga, thank you for being with us. And the dramatic uptick in COVID-19 cases, obviously alarming. What do you think is contributing to the surge? And as mayor, what are you going to do to stop the spread? Epidemiologists are telling me that our spread is most closely linked to the reopening of Arizona and the rapid way we lifted the stay-at-home order. We opened much more quickly than other communities and businesses such as nightclubs where you have Indoor situations and close transmission situations have really contributed to the spread. We are trying to do what we can at the city, whether it be masking, providing services so people can stay at home, get food, essentials, and then just using our public platform to tell people we have not defeated COVID-19. Yeah, that's an important message for people to remember. Employees at several Phoenix area businesses have tested positive for coronavirus recently. That's led to some restaurants halting dine-in service again. So do you foresee a second shutdown? Right now, we are trying to just educate our residents that we have to take this seriously. Many people thought that during the summer we would see lower transmission, but in fact, we are setting all kinds of records. Yesterday, our governor gave cities the ability to put a masking ordinance in place, which is something I enthusiastically support. We are also doing more at the city to share public health information so that our businesses know what they can do to protect our residents. In addition to that mask wearing mandate in your state, Governor Ducey also announced the deployment of 300 National Guardsmen to help with contact tracing in your state. Is this welcome news for your city? It is. We need our residents to be able to share And to tell the people who they may have come in contact with if they have COVID-19, contact tracing is important to being able to reopen successfully. We certainly appreciate your time and all of your efforts there. Mayor Kate Gallego, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. With people continuing to practice social distancing, working from home and largely staying indoors, the salon service industry has been hit hard through the course of this pandemic. And here to talk more about these impacts and how she is reopening her salons back up for business is New York Times bestselling author and founder of the successful blow dry bar chain, Dry Bar, Ali Webb. Ali, thanks for being with us. And I know you have more than 150 dry bar locations across this country. Talk about how your business has been affected by this pandemic. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, like so many other businesses out there, we, you know, we closed down very quickly once everything started, um, which was, you know, just in and of itself crazy because our shops are open seven days a week. Um, so closing our shop very quickly was was uh, intense. And yeah, we've been closed for a long time and we're just now starting to get back up to speed and start opening again um, with a whole different slew of protocols and kind of a new way of life within our shop. So yeah, I mean, I think the service industries in general has been hit really hard. It's just, you know, we have, we have almost 4,000 stylists and, you know, to just not be able to work has been really challenging. So we've definitely been hit hard by this um, and are excited to start opening and, and really coming at it very, very cautiously. Yeah. And as you begin that reopening process, you mentioned new protocols. Talk us through what it looks like now to walk into a dry bar salon. It looks completely different. Um, we are now spacing out the ch- each salon chair six feet apart. So it's basically like in every other situation. Everybody has to wear masks. We're also not allowing women to congregate in the front. Like if you've ever been in a dry bar, you know there's usually women waiting at the front. We are doing a vertical, uh, vertical. We're doing a virtual check-in. So you will get alerted when you're outside in your car waiting versus waiting inside dry bar. You know to avoid people kind of clustering together. Everyone's temperature is getting checked. There, we're sanitizing in between each client. So it just it it looks and feels quite different, but obviously so important for us to keep everybody safe. That's right. That's right. And black hair care is something that is typically that's been lacking in the American beauty industry. You posted recently that you've been talking with your team on how you can make improvements in your own business as the push for social justice reform continues to grow. Tell us what you want to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think this is, you know, we have a handful of, we have, we service every woman, all different ethnicities and colors and shapes and sizes, you name it. Um, and yeah, I think that's something that we can do better than we've done in the past. And, uh, you know, and I have been really vocal on social media about it. And a lot of my stylists have come to me and said, Hey, we need some more things. We need some more training. So we are actively working on that as we speak to put some new, um, initiatives in place to better serve our black community and just women in general. So that's something that was, you know, really brought to my attention and something that we jumped all over to, you know, to really make a difference and, um, and show that we're listening and we care and we want to make, you know, everybody really happy and comfortable when they're in dry bar, no matter what their hair looks like. Yep. And this pandemic has forced so many businesses to pivot, to rethink how they operate. And you say that you may make some changes now as you move forward because of what you've learned from this pandemic. Tell us what. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, one of the big things is, is the virtual component. Um, dry bar has always been known for the convenience factor. You know, you can pop in, get your hair blown out, be on your laptop, or, you know, and then run out to a meeting. So, you know, the virtual check-in is something, the technology piece of it that we've been able to move forward quickly because of this, uh, that I think is something that will probably stay in place as we continue to grow the company as another kind of convenience factor, uh, something that will make it even easier. So you can be, you know, on a call in your car or walking around just waiting for your appointment versus just having to sit in the shop. So I think that's that's a silver lining <laughs> in all of this that will certainly come out of it. Yeah, we'll take it. Ali Webb, thank you so much for your time today. We certainly appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks. Straight ahead here on What You Need to Know, the doctor is in. Dr. Jen Ashton, of course, here to answer your medical questions. And the new safety protocols in place at a family vacation favorite, Disney reopening its doors.
And we are back with Dr. Jen Ashton here answering a number of your COVID-19 questions as usual. So yep. never been a short supply of them, Dr. Jen. So we'll start with the first one. Is there a correlation between vitamin D and severity of COVID-19 infections? This is an area of intense and ongoing research. There are clinical trials looking at vitamin D both as prevention and as this associated potential factor in terms of severity of disease. And there is data precedent for this. We know that there's a link and potential biologic causation. You know, we always talk about that. There has to be cause and effect as well between people with low blood vitamin D levels and an increased risk of upper respiratory infections. So people are looking at now with COVID-19, is there a connection, especially because a lot of the deaths have been in populations which have tend to have low vitamin D levels, the elderly, the obese, black and brown people. So this is ongoing uh, area of research. Okay. Next question. Are we still facing a PPE shortage if states begin to enter a second wave of infections? It's hard to get a good grip on this, Amy, but I think the short answer is we have to err on the side of caution. I can tell you when I reopen my medical practice, I- I'm having trouble um, finding supplies and there is price gouging, unfortunately, going on. Um, and at the hospital level, they already started looking at disinfecting, reuse, wearing a a mask, let's say, multiple times, because there is a big concern that as cases start to go up locally, regionally, that we could find ourselves in the same situation. That's part of the reason also why widespread wearing of surgical masks or N95s still is not recommended for the general public. We need those for healthcare workers and first responders. So this is something that everyone is concerned about. All right. Next question. What do we know about the Texas woman who has tested positive a second time. I'll tell you, Amy, I just spoke with Dr. Anthony Fauci yesterday about this, and this is, I believe, a perfect example of a headline gone wrong. Mm. Because at this point, there is pretty good evidence, uh, some coming out of Asia, some in this country, that when someone tests positive with a nasal swab again, all that is doing is detecting what's called viral debris. They are not actively infected or contagious. That is really important because some companies, some areas, some states are using a retest to say to someone, you've recovered. Mm-hmm. And we can't do that. Actually, the science points to the opposite. So um, no, the general thinking in infectious disease specialists is that this was not a case of reinfection. This is just continuing detection of viral debris, but not actively infected. Right. Really important. Yeah, that is important to make that distinction. Yeah. Next question. Is it possible that we can weaken our immune systems by using too many antibacterial products on our hands and surfaces? Also a really common question, and you can understand where the question comes from. I've been in touch with top infectious disease specialists. They say that, you know, our, our immune system is way stronger than to be precariously uh, uprooted after just two months of, of all of this aggressive hygiene. Uh, you know, that is based on our immune system that we get as children and babies. So short answer, no, we don't have to worry about that. We have more keep, to worry about with these Yeah, pathogens. keep washing those That's hands right. and cleaning those surfaces. All right. Thank you, Dr. You Jen. Bet. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. As Americans across the country continue to fight for black lives, there has been an urgent call for people to not only think about racism, but to fight against it actively. And doing so may require some tough conversations with friends and family members. So here to share some advice on how to navigate these discussions is deputy editor of Vice Life and author of The Art of Showing Up, Rachel Wilkerson Miller. Rachel, thanks for being with us. And I know a lot of people are struggling with wanting to talk about what's going on, but afraid 
to address the uncomfortable. So you have three tips on how friends and family can have open conversations about Black Lives Matter and systemic racism. Please share them with us. Yeah, of course. Um, So the first thing is to really know the material. Um, It's totally reasonable that if you are seeing what's going on, you're really eager to do something about it and take action and jump into these conversations. But it's really hard to have a fraught conversation if you don't actually know what you're talking about, particularly if the person you're arguing with is really sort of belligerent or argumentative. You need to know what you need to know the facts. So take a little time, press pause to, you know, read a book, read an article, watch a documentary, listen to a podcast, make sure you know the material and kind of what the main arguments you might be dealing with are so that you can speak to it really confidently because it's definitely hard when somebody thinks they know more than you and, and you're like, well, maybe you do. So so take the time to educate yourself first. Um, I think the next thing is to really think about who you're talking to and to know their values because sometimes it makes sense to kind of meet people where they are. And if the person that you're talking to is the sort of person who would respond really well to numbers, then maybe you should spend a little time researching, you know, here are the numbers um, from the Justice Department or uh, of unarmed people being killed by police. And when you can provide that, that might get through to them more. Um, If they're really religious, it might make sense to think about, okay, what are prominent religious institutions saying about this? And how can I come at this through the scripture lens? So think about what they're most likely to respond to and tailor your conversation accordingly. Yeah, less emotion, more facts. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And then I think the last thing is um, be willing to set the terms. Uh, It can be hard to walk away from a conversation or to set a boundary or to say, hey, I'm not okay with you talking to me like that. But pay close attention to the person that you're talking to and whether they're really interested in engaging in this in good faith. If you're getting the sense that this is kind of just sport for them and they're not actually listening to you and looking to have their mind changed, it's okay to say, you know what? I can see that you're not really interested in in hearing me out. So let's pause this conversation and uh, maybe pick it up another time. Or you could say, you know, I don't really want to have this conversation until you've read a couple of the articles that I've sent you because a lot of this is answered in there. It's really okay to keep things on track. And that can feel uncomfortable if you've never done it before. But be confident and be firm and say, no, I, I want to talk to you about this, but we need to do it in a way that's actually productive. Yeah. And it goes without saying, and I don't even know if you can put it into words, how hard and how heavy these past few weeks have been for black people in America. And I know self-care is very important to you. So what are some ways black people can practice self-care right now? So I think one big thing is just make sure your basic needs are being met. Um, Check in with yourself. Are you eating? Are you drinking enough water? Are you getting some fresh air every day? Are you getting enough rest? Maybe set some alarms on your phone to remind yourself to take a break or eat lunch. I know it can be really hard to remember to do those things, but if you're not taking care of your body at a basic level. You can't be out there putting your body on the line to protest or making phone calls. So that's a really big one. The other thing that I think is really important and something that I've been trying to do is to really make space in your life for black joy and black art. Like so much of what we're seeing is really violent imagery. It's really dehumanizing. Um, It's really brutal. And you need something to kind of counterbalance that. So put on your favorite black artists or, you know, I've been watching um, Maurice Harris's show on Quibi. It's like he's a black forest florist who's interviewing other black artists and it's so lovely and affirming and I felt so better so much better after doing that um so make a point to to find the black joy and connect with other black people in ways that make you feel uplifted and happy and and give you a laugh sometimes I love that that's great advice Rachel's book by the way the art of showing up is available now make sure you check it out Rachel thank you so much for being with us today my pleasure thanks for having me 
for many families, summer means a trip to a Disney theme park. And just today, Hong Kong Disneyland became the second Disney park to reopen after being closed for five months due to this pandemic. Here at home, beginning on July 11th, Walt Disney World's theme parks in Orlando are reopening in phases, with Disneyland in California also planning to reopen next month. Here to tell us what changes are in store to keep everyone safe at the happiest place on earth is Disney Parks Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Pam Heimel. Thank you for being with us. And Dr. Pam, I want to start because we just mentioned the parks in Shanghai and Hong Kong have both reopened. Talk about those safety measures that you have put in place when Disney theme parks reopen so everyone can feel all the better about walking in those doors. Great. Thank you. Well, we've been following guidance from local health authorities, guidance from the CDC, and we've taken a six-pronged science-based approach to the health and safety protocols we've put in place. We've implemented physical distancing guidelines and reduced capacity in order to accommodate those. We've also increased the number of hand washing and hand sanitizing stations, increased cleaning and disinfecting throughout our parks. We've added temperature checks for both our cast and our guests, and we're requiring cloth face coverings for our cast members and guests ages two and older. And we've added things like contactless payments so that guests don't have to interact with touching objects. And Dr. Pam, since so many people go to the Disney theme parks, in addition to lowering the capacity in each park in a, in a graded fashion, how is it possible to encourage social distancing, especially in light of the new headlines today that are worried about the, the numbers that we're seeing come out of Florida? Yes, we're really following all the numbers very closely, working with public health officials and, and really looking at reducing our capacity in order to accommodate those physical distancing guidelines. We're also reconfiguring things like our queue lines and our ride vehicle loading so that we can ensure that there is physical distancing in place. And we're doing things like adding physical barriers if needed. So we're taking every precaution uh, in order to promote that physical distancing. Dr. Pam, you mentioned face coverings will be required for guests. We've seen recently what's happening on airlines with airlines, having those same rules in place for their uh, there are folks who come through. What will your cast members, what will your crew do for guests who aren't following those face covering rules? Well, we have great faith in our guests and we've had really good response both in Shanghai and then at Disney Springs as we've reopened. We'll ask our guests to wear their face coverings uh, and we do have a special team of our cast members that have been trained to interact with our guests in fun and engaging ways and explain the requirements and ask them to help us with all the shared responsibility we have about going back into the public and into our communities and into our parks. You know, I wear a face covering because it may help protect you and you wear a face covering because it may help protect me. And so we're all in this together and we're going to ask our cast and our guests to help be in this together and share in the responsibility of having fun in our parks. And obviously, in addition to the great Disney theme parks, there are so many resorts also in various stages of reopening. So what kind of safety changes will guests at the Disney resorts be experiencing? So even before our guests arrive, we're going to do enhanced cleaning of all of the guest rooms, especially focusing on high-touch surfaces and high-touch objects. There'll be online check-ins, so guests can actually go straight through the lobby and into their rooms. 
we're doing an every other day light cleaning in order to limit the number of outside per persons coming into a room. And our restaurants, pools, and lobbies will be reconfigured, will adjust seating and services. And so we can really follow social distancing guidelines. And we're adding technology, things like mobile ordering, cashless transactions, other things that may include our magic bands, uh, just to help promote uh, some of that uh, ability to transact without touching objects. Well, Dr. Pam, I know so many people around the world are so excited to see Disney reopen. And of course, Disney is the parent company of ABC News. We certainly appreciate you sharing with us how those theme parks will look different, but be safe for the people who want to go. Thank you. Thank you. Native American communities have been hit especially hard by COVID-19 with significant challenges like food and water insecurity. Battling COVID-19 has been even more difficult, leaving many tribes in crisis. Joining us now is someone working tirelessly to help these communities through her organization, Utah Tribal COVID-19 Relief founder, Heather Tanana. Thank you for being with us, Heather. And you're actually a Navajo tribal member. You have family living on the reservation right now. Tell us how everyone's doing. You know, it's still a really dire uh, situation. The numbers on Navajo Nation just this week, cases surpassed 6,600. The deaths have surpassed 300. Uh, So it's something we're really concerned about. Personally, we have many family members that we're worried about. uh, And that's what prompted this group, right? We know it was a growing problem and we wanted to help. All right. So tell us what you've done. Your organization, again, Utah Tribal COVID-19 Relief. What have you been able to do? Yeah, so we're a partnership with different state uh, and other organizations, and we are providing relief to all eight of Utah's federally recognized tribes. But we're focusing specifically on Navajo to give extra attention because of the growing uh, cases and the dire need that they have. And we're doing monetary collections, item donations, and just being a connector. When someone reaches out to us and they have something that's a little unique to donate, like generators that we wouldn't normally take down, we connect them with other people to make sure that all these resources are really fully utilized. Yeah, and I know that you recently took a trip with volunteers to make that in-person donation, those drop-offs. Tell us what the experience was like seeing all of that hard work and give us a sense of how much has been donated. Yeah, so it was really quite emotional for me. We had small expectations when we started. We set a goal of $10,000 and maybe being able to send a couple of truckloads down to the Navajo Reservation. And we have collected almost 40,000 and well over 19,000 pounds of items. Uh, We had about 45 planes flying down to Montezuma Creek and Navajo Mountain. So the response was just overwhelming in the best way possible. Oh, well, it is a beautiful thing to see. And we, we see your emotion. We feel it with you. Thank you for all that you are doing. And we certainly appreciate your time today. Wishing you the best. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And time now for final thoughts and Dr. Jen. Well, Amy, you know, we've heard so much in the course of this pandemic about the term flattening the curve. In speaking to epidemiologists, there's another term that I really want to bring into people's mindset, which is called raising the line. And what that refers to is what the healthcare system is doing right now to prepare for increasing cases. So taking you inside hospitals, medical centers, it's really focused on four key parameters, staff, supplies, space, and systems. So right now, regardless of what's going on state by state, 
Each hospital is getting their ducks in a row because they can't wait till the last minute to figure this out. So whether that's checking ICU beds, checking COVID beds, or their outpatient facilities, all of this is going on right now. And it's important to keep in mind, it's just not about what's going on in the community. It's about what's going on within our healthcare system. And we're so grateful for all of those frontline workers. Dr. Absolutely. Jen, thank you. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.